Well, you are listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm the host of this podcast. My name is Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also teach as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I want to tackle a very difficult, controversial issue that comes up a lot of times when we discuss the issues related to Reformed theology and the issue of election and predestination and all of the the, the interesting topics that go along with this theological theme. And so what I want to just begin by saying is that the Bible clearly teaches the doctrine of election or predestination. That's undisputable. The question is not, does the Bible teach it? The question becomes, which view of election or which view of predestination do you hold to? Let me just give you a few passages of Scripture that teach this. In John 6, 35-38, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, the question becomes, why were they not believing? Jesus was right before their eyes. He was doing miracles in the flesh. He had fed the 5,000. And so there was a huge miracle right before the eyes of these 5,000 people. And Jesus says in verse 36, you've seen me, you've seen me in the flesh, you've seen me do these miracles, yet you do not believe. And so why are they not believing? Well, Jesus answers that in verse 37, because they were not given to him by the Father. The elect, the chosen believers are given to Jesus by the Father, and they and they alone will come to Jesus in saving faith, which leaves a logical conclusion or a logical question. There must be some who were not given to Jesus by the Father and therefore will never come to faith in Him. If there is a group that the Father gave to Jesus and they will come to Him, and we know the Bible teaches not everyone comes to faith in Christ, then we have to logically conclude that there are some that the Father did not give to Jesus who will not come to faith. Okay, another passage of Scripture, Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Okay, there were those that believed. Why did they believe when the gospel had come to them? Well, it's because they were appointed to eternal life. They were predestined, which also shows a logical conclusion. There must have been some that were not appointed to eternal life, and therefore they did not believe. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Again, there were those that were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. There were those that were predestined for adoption, which means that there must have been some that were not chosen or not predestined. 
2 Thessalonians 2, 13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Again, we know there are those that will not have faith, will not have salvation, won't be sanctified. Why? Because they were not chosen from the beginning. Revelation 13, 8 All who dwell on the earth will worship it, talking about the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. There are those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, which leads to a logical conclusion that there must be some whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Now, all evangelicals, believe that there are those who are saved, those who will go to heaven, and then those who are lost, those who won't go to heaven, and that God chooses, God predestines. The issue is not does God teach predestin or does not the Bible teach predestination? The question becomes how does God do his choosing and on what basis does God do this? And so there are three primary views. There is the traditional Arminian foreknowledge view. Okay, this is the view that the traditional Arminian foreknowledge view holds to that uh, the reason that some are not chosen is because when God, before eternity or before time or before the creation of the world, when he looked down through the corridors of time and foresaw individuals, he saw those who would not choose him. And so God let them use their free will to reject him when presented the gospel. And when God saw that, he simply allowed that to happen or saw that they wouldn't choose him. And therefore, he did not choose based upon what he foresaw. That's the traditional Arminian foreknowledge view. There's the corporate election view, which some Arminians hold to. It's the predominant view among traditionalist Southern Baptists. God chose a conglomerate group called the elect to be in Christ, that there would be a church, there would be believers, there would be this group called the elect. God chose this conglomerate group before time. But in time, when you are presented the gospel, a sinner can choose to accept or reject Jesus based upon libertarian free will. And if you accept Christ based upon libertarian free will, then you are placed in the elect. You are placed in that group that was chosen before the foundation of the world. Uh, this is not an individual election to salvation per se, per se, but it's the view that there is a elect group, a corporate group that God chose before the foundation of the world, and by your free will, you choose to get into that group. And then there's obviously the Reformed view of unconditional election in that God chose a large number of sinners to be saved and there were no conditions that the sinner had to meet in order for God to do the choosing. God did not foresee faith. God did not foresee repentance. God did not foresee merit. God did not foresee obedience. God did not foresee any type of condition that had to be met. God simply chose based upon the good pleasure of his will to do so. Now, all three views still have those who are not saved, that are not chosen. The issue then becomes why? Why are they not chosen? Why are they not saved? Now, 
in the Reformed tradition, we call those that are not elect, that are not saved, the reprobate. So what I'm going to discuss in this podcast is the doctrine of reprobation. And maybe you've never um, studied this. Maybe you've never heard that term. Maybe this is a new concept for you, uh, the doctrine of reprobation. And so probably the best definition is from the Canons of Dort. And we're coming up on the, the 500th anniversary this year of the Synod of Dort that met with the Dutch Reformed Church to combat the um, Armenian errors that the Remonstrants brought in the Dutch Church. And so at the Synod of Dort, they came up with the Canons of Dort. And in section one that talks about unconditional election, in Article 15, they define reprobation. So let me just read to you what the Canons of Dort in their Article 15 on reprobation teach, because I think it's a pretty clear, it's a clear reformed understanding of this doctrine. So this is from the Canons of Dort. Moreover, Holy Scripture most especially highlights this eternal and undeserved grace of our election and brings them out more clearly for us in that it further bears witness that not all people have been chosen, but that some have not been chosen or have been passed by in God's eternal election. Those, that is, concerning whom, and on the basis of His entirely free, most just, irreproachable, and unchangeable good pleasure, made the following decree, to leave them in the common misery into which by their own fault they have plunged themselves, not to grant them saving faith and the grace of conversion, but finally to condemn and eternally punish those who have been left in their own ways and under God's just judgment, not only for their unbelief, but also for their other sins in order to display His justice. And this is the decree of reprobation, which does not all at all make God the author of sin, a blasphemous thought, but rather it's fearful, irreproachable, just judge and avenger. Okay, that's a very good definition of what the Reformed doctrine of reprobation is. And so we need to understand that the doctrine of reprobation basically means that God chooses to pass over those that justly deserve his condemnation, and God chooses not to intervene by granting them saving grace or regeneration or any of the benefits that come from salvation, but to simply leave them in their state of fallenness that came from Adam. Now, Louis Burkhoff, which I believe is the best systematic theology textbook that's out there, it was written back, I think, in the 30s, still, I think, one of the best, and um, he gives a, a, a pretty good definition, not pretty good, very good definition of this, uh, the doctrine of reprobation. And so let me just give you his words. Um, he says, Reprobation may be defined as that eternal decree of God, whereby he has determined to pass some men by with the operations of his special grace and to punish them for their sins to the manifestation of his justice. And this is what he does that I think is very important. He, he talks about the two elements of reprobation. So the following points deserve special emphasis. It contains two elements. According to the most usual represent, representation in Reformed theology, the decree of reprobation comprises two elements, namely preterition, that's the first element, preterition, which is the determination to pass by some men, and the second one, condemnation, the determination to punish those who are passed by for their 
sins. It's such, it embodies a twofold purpose. A, to pass by some in the bestowal of regeneration and saving grace, and B, to assign them to dishonor and to the wrath of God for their sins. Okay, here is the meaning of those two issues that, that are part of, uh, of the doctrine of reprobation. Preterition basically means that, let's, let's start back from the very beginning. Because of the fall of Adam, all people are plunged into sin, are born inheriting a sin nature, inherit the guilt of Adam, and therefore are fallen by nature in Adam. And as a result of the fallen nature in Adam, every single sinner is guilty by nature and guilty by their own individual sins in which they commit. So all humanity is fallen in Adam. And so what the doctrine of preterition means is that God simply leaves those people in their state of sin. He does not intervene to overcome their deadness. He does not intervene to overcome their depravity. He does not give them regenerating grace. God simply leaves them in that state of their natural state of fallenness in Adam. That's preterition. Condemnation means that God determines to punish them eternally for their own sins that they actually commit. And so the doctrine of of, of election naturally flows from the logic of election. Reprobation flows logically from election. Um, Louis Burkhoff again says the, the decree of election inevitably implies the decree of reprobation. If the all-wise God, possessed of infinite knowledge, has eternally purposed to save some, then he ipso facto also purposed not to save others. If he has chosen or elected some, then he has by that very fact also rejected others. So it's the logical inference, it's the logical conclusion from election. It just makes sense. If God chooses some for salvation, then that means there are those that he doesn't choose. And so that's the issue of of reprobation. Now, let's talk about the issue of equal ultimacy. And that may be a term that you're not familiar with also, equal ultimacy. Because sometimes Calvinists or Reformed are accused of what would be an extreme view of double predestination. Now, I don't have necessarily personally a problem with the term double predestination as long as we understand it in the sense of an infralapsarian view of the fall and election and also the idea that it's not equal ultimacy. And I'll explain that here in a moment um, because I think that there's some mischaracterizations of that. Um, Here's the idea of equal ultimacy. Let me just kind of define what equal ultimacy means and the charge that's sometimes given to those that hold to the doctrine of reprobation and unconditional election. It's the idea that in eternity past before time, um, God viewed human beings as morally neutral. He did not view them as fallen yet in Adam. And God decides to somehow make them evil or somehow infuse sin into them or do something in them to make them sinners, and then he punishes them. 
In other words, equal equal ultimacy says that God is actively working sin into the reprobate the same way he's working regeneration or salvation or righteousness in the elect. In other words, um, it's a perfect symmetry. So, So let me just kind of unpack this for you. Equal ultimacy is the idea that God has to actually work sin into fallen sinners so that they can be justly punished because God moves in them to cause them to sin. Um, what, what the reform view says is that, no, all people are sinful in Adam. We are fallen by nature and we're fallen by choice. God does not have to actively work iniquity. God does not have to actively work sin in our lives. We're going to sin naturally because that's our nature. So all people are naturally going to sin because of being fallen in Adam. God doesn't have to do anything extra in a sinner to make them reprobate. They're already sinful. What God does is he actively overcomes that nature of sin. God overcomes that deadness. God overcomes that depravity in the elect through actively regenerating them, giving them new hearts. And so for the elect, God actively brings saving grace. For the non-elect, God simply leaves them in their state of sin. So equal ultimacy is not the doctrine and the historic reform doctrine of reprobation. In the doctrine of reprobation that's historically reformed, God contemplated or God viewed humans in light of the fall and already saw us as sinful and fallen in Adam. Now, let me just give you some assertions. I'm, I want to give you the infralapsarian position. Now, you may not understand infralapsarian versus supralapsarian. Um, these are terms that are in-house reformed discussions, and if you go to some systematic theology textbooks, they'll unpack them in more detail. So I'm, I'm, I'm throwing out some big words in this podcast, reprobation, preterition, infralapsarian, but I want to expose you to these because these are theological terms that have historically been used in this discussion. So let me just give you the infralapsarian position by giving you the following assertions, things that the historic so, so let me just say that all of the Reformed confessions, the Canons of Dort, the Belgic Confessions, the Helvetic Confessions, the Westminster Confession, the Second London Baptist Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, um, all of the Reformed confessions are infralapsarian in their view. Now that can be debated by some, but historically the Reformed confessions have been infralapsarian. And so let me give you the um, tenets of infralapsarianism. Okay, so infralapsarian. Here's the first assertion. God has an eternal and immutable decree. God made a decree before time. It's an unchangeable decree. Uh, Interesting passage of Scripture I came across as I was reading um, the Scriptures, Job 23.14. Job says, talking about the Lord, he says, For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. 
Now, that's a pretty powerful statement about God's immutable decree. God has an unchangeable decree that he has appointed. He's going to do what he desires, and that is God's sovereign right to do so. That's assertion number one. Assertion number two, God created the universe out of nothing for his glory. Third assertion, God decreed the fall of Adam as our federal head, as well as the whole doctrine of original sin. Now, there are some that are going to disagree with this, Arminians and traditional Southern Baptists. They're going to say God didn't decree the fall. God may have allowed it to happen or or whatever, but all Reformed theologians believe that God decreed the fall of Adam. It wasn't a surprise to him. He actually ordained that it would happen and that Adam would be our federal head and that all humanity would be plunged into original sin. God's decree, here's the second, or here's the next um, assertion. God's decree views all people as fallen in Adam, where we sin by nature and by choice. So God's decree looks at humans in light of the fall. The next assertion is God predestined individual sinners to salvation as those who were not holy and blameless, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, but as fallen in Adam. Again, this is the infralapsarian view. God, in eternity past, viewed sinners as fallen in Adam, and he predestined based upon that idea that they are fallen. The next assertion is that God left or passed over other individual sinners in that sin that they inherited from Adam and did not intervene in sovereign grace, but will punish them for their sins. Okay, that's preterition and condemnation. Those that God chose not to save are still fallen in Adam. They will be left in that condition as fallen in Adam. They sin by choice and by nature because of the inherited sin they received from Adam, and they will be justly punished because of that. And then here's another important one, the last assertion. God has exhaustive and infallible knowledge of all things and foreknowledge of all things. So he either saw or foreknew or ordained who would and would not receive Christ. So therefore, creating or giving birth to these people he knew would reject Christ means that he created them anyway knowing that they would never come to faith and be lost. So here's the problem if you hold to the Arminian foreknowledge view or you hold to these other views. It doesn't get God off the hook in this whole idea. So if you deny unconditional election or you deny these types of teachings, what you really have to deny is God's omniscience and God's foreknowledge of all things. Let me give you a quote from Lorraine Bettner. In his book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, I think it's a pretty good quote in his section on reprobation. He says this, quote, As a matter of fact, the Arminians do not escape any real difficulty here. For since they admit that God has foreknowledge of all things, they must explain why he creates those whom he foresees will lead sinful lives, reject the gospel, die impenitent, and suffer eternally in hell. The Arminians really have a more difficult problem here than do the Calvinists. For the Calvinists maintain that the one 
ones whom God thus creates, knowing that they will be lost, are the non-elect who voluntarily choose sin and whose merited punishment God designs to manifest his justice. While the Arminians must say that God deliberately creates those who he foresees will be such poor, miserable creatures that without serving any good purpose, they will bring destruction upon themselves and will spend eternity in hell in spite of the fact that God himself earnestly wishes to bring them to heaven and that God shall be forever grieved in seeing them where he wishes they were not. Do you understand what he's saying there? Okay, so if God foresees who will and who will not choose him for salvation and he sees those who do not, that means those people are real people that will be created in time, be born, and will choose to reject Christ. Unless God has some type of foreknowledge that's in error, that he sees something that's faulty, or he sees something that doesn't come to pass, which you would have to deny. So if God foresees that these people will not choose him and yet allows or ordains or permits them to be born anyway and to live their entire life, not ever coming to faith, then God still ordains the fact that he allowed these people to come into existence knowing full well that they would never come to him and God does nothing to intervene but leaves them to use their free will forever to reject him. So Arminians still have the same problem. It doesn't get God off the hook. So that's the doctrine of reprobation, preterition, infralapsarian asserted historically from systematic theology, from historians, from confessions. Now let's get to the scriptures. What saith the scriptures? Do the scriptures actually teach this doctrine? Because that's the most important thing. Not necessarily what a confession says or what a systematic theologian says, but what, are the, what does the Bible say? Now, we assume and we trust that the confessions, they're not infallible, they're not inerrant, but the confessions are a cumulative work of doctrine that many people over the the hundreds of years have agreed upon teaches these things. So the confessions are a good place to look at the cumulative uh, mind, theological mind uh, of a large group of, of people. But the most important thing is the Bible. So let's look at the Old Testament first, Joshua 11, 18 through 20. Joshua 11, 18 through 20. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, what you have here is you've got God choosing not to intervene to bring about the salvation or the saving of the ites or the Canaanites in the land that the Israelites went in to occupy the promised land. And verse 20 says, it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that they would come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy. Now, I don't know how you deal with this passage of Scripture. We can look at what it says and what it doesn't say. We don't know exactly how the Lord hardened their hearts to come against Israel. It just says it was the Lord's doing. Uh, We don't know if He directly intervened to literally harden their hearts or it was ordained in eternity past that they would 
operate under the own, their, their own sinful desires to do what God ordained to do. But you have a passage of Scripture here saying that these people would be devoted to destruction and not receive mercy because God intervened not to bring about their salvation. Proverbs 16.4, The Lord has made everything for His purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Okay. Sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes. To everything, there's a season, there's a purpose. God has a sovereign purpose for everything that he has made, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So God has purposed in eternity past that there would be some that would not be recipients of saving grace, but would be passed over in their sins. Now, Matthew 7, 23 is an interesting passage of Scripture that maybe there's some debate about how Jesus uses this word. Now, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. These are the scary words where Jesus um, tells those that had cast out demons and performed miracles um, that I never knew you. Matthew 7, 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Now the question is never. What does I never knew you meant? Well, it's in the aorist tense, past tense, which means there was never a time where Jesus knew those who will stand on the day of, of judgment. Now, does this mean that Jesus never knew them at a point in time on earth? In the sense that they never actually trusted Christ for salvation. They never made that decision, and Jesus never knew them because on earth they never made that choice. Or does it mean that Jesus never knew them at any point in the sense that it goes back to before time in that the Father gave Jesus a people before the foundation of the world, and he never knew them through election or repentance or, or faith or, or from anything from eternity past? The text doesn't say that the sinner never knew Jesus, but it says that Jesus never knew them. Now, I don't know if there's enough in that text to make a dogmatic statement about that, but you do have to grapple with the issue of what does never mean? I never knew you. Does that just mean a point in time Jesus never knew them because they never trusted him, or does that mean he never knew them in the sense that they were never given to him by the Father, even though they had spurious faith, they, they were fakers, they had a false conversion, they weren't truly saved? What about Matthew eleven twenty five through 26? At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and of earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. If you look in the Gospels especially, there are times where Jesus is preaching or he's teaching and he's saying things about what the Father has done. And the Lord is hiding things. The Lord is disclosing things from people, and He's revealing those to other things. God's making a sovereign choice of who's going to receive the message, who's going to receive salvation, and who's not. What I want to look at is 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus 
Christ. Now that word destined is the way the ESV translates it. Uh, some other translations may use the word appoint, ordain, assign, or arrange. Why have we not been destined for wrath, but instead to obtain salvation? Why has God, God not appointed us for wrath? Well, if you go back up in the beginning of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, you see how Paul starts this whole conversation. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. We know, brothers, loved by God that He has chosen you. God had sovereignly chosen the Thessalonians. God had sovereignly showered them with love. They received the gospel. They were appointed to eternal life and they believed. The Holy Spirit brought convicting, regenerating power to them. So why are they not destined or appointed to wrath? It's because God had chosen them. Now, the logical inference that you would conclude from this is that there are those who are destined for wrath, appointed for wrath. Why? Well, the context of 1 Thessalonians says they were not chosen by God, and, and thus, because they weren't chosen, they never did come to faith in Christ. Now, the same word there in the Greek language, destined or appointed, that we see in 1 Thessalonians, we also see in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2, 8-10. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now let me give you a quote from Tom Schreiner. Tom Schreiner is a professor of New Testament at Southern Seminary. He's written a lot of exegetical material on this, probably one of the, the leaning New Testament scholars of our day. Uh, this is what Tom Schreiner writes. <clears throat> Quote, Some scholars argue that Peter merely meant that God had appointed that those who disobey the message of the gospel would stumble. Such an interpretation fits with the theme that human beings decide their fate. But the interpretation proposed is prosaic and obvious. And it is unlikely that this captures the meaning. Rather, the pronoun which refers back to the entire thought that proceeds. God has not only appointed that those who disobey the word would stumble and fall, he has also determined that they would disbelieve and stumble. So you can get around that passage of Scripture and try to make it say what it doesn't, but it says there they were appointed to disobey the Word. Now, could it just be generally that God set up a plan where those who don't believe in Jesus will stumble, and it's just more of a generic stumbling that those that don't believe? Or is this a, a designation of individual people that would not believe? You see the same type of language in Jude. Verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They were designated for this condemnation. Now, 
that's an interesting word there. Designated long ago. Literally Greek means written about beforehand. Does it simply mean that in general, the Old Testament written scriptures predicted generally that there would be generally false teachers in general? Or is it specific to Jude and to that church context? If so, where was it written beforehand about these specific men that would creep in? Can you find an Old Testament passage that teaches this this general designation? The word can also mean prescripted, that the condemnation was specifically ordained by God beforehand. I don't think there's enough information to be dogmatic about that, but what can we conclude so far? We know that God has predestined individual sinners before the foundation of the world for salvation, to be holy and blameless. The Father has given to Jesus a people. We call this unconditional election. And number two, the logical inference, the logical conclusion from unconditional election is that there are those who have not been predestined for salvation, but instead will never come to faith in Christ. Now, let's go to the big passage of Scripture that probably teaches this the most clearly, and that's Romans chapter 9. And let's look at verses 10 through 22. Romans chapter 9. Now, before I dive into this, I know there's the view of corporate election. I know that there's others who have looked at this, and they don't buy that Paul is talking about individual salvation to election. He's talking about nations. He's talking about um, Jacob being chosen to serve the noble purpose of bringing the Messiah and the message, and Esau wasn't, and and all this type of stuff. Um, I'm not necessarily going to interact with that, but I'm just going to read it and give you some thoughts about how we as Reformed theologians come to understand the doctrine of reprobation from Romans chapter 9. So let's start in verse 10. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, that would be Isaac, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, and endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. There's a lot in this passage of Scripture that we could talk about. I just want to talk about a few observations. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Some will argue that this is a judicial hardening. God lets them go their own way, 
Over time, they've rejected the gospel, they've grown calloused, uh, they've become religious, and because of their impenitent heart, over time, they've grown calloused, they've grown hardened to the message, and so it's a judicial hardening that God just gives them their own way. My question is, is there anything in this text that mentions this? Does it say that they had already turned their backs on God? Does it say in the text that they had grown hardened over time? The wording there in verse 18 is that he hardens whom he wills. It doesn't say he hardens those who rejected the truth and grew hardened and calloused over time. There's no interjection of a growing calloused over time. God simply hardens them. And then in verse 20, when the molded Clay says back to its molder, why have you made me this way? Why have you made me this way? The, the, the response back, the retort's not, why have I grown hardened over time? Why did you allow me to continue to grow calloused? Why did I continue to do this over time and become hardened? What was the case of Esau and the case of Pharaoh? Did he create them to harden them? Or are they complaining that they were born with the capacity to grow hardened over time? What's the question there? Why did you make me like this? Make me like what? Hardened over time? Judicially hardened? Or why did you make me like this? Hated or a vessel of destruction or one of the ones that was not elect? That's the question. Verse 22 What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, had us endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now, this is the big issue of interpretation in verse 22. Did these vessels of wrath, like Esau, like Pharaoh, did they prepare themselves for wrath over time? Did they grow hardened? Did they grow calloused? Was it a judicial hardening that happened over time where they prepared themselves for that? Or were they prepared in eternity past as a part of God's sovereign decree? Well, first of all, what's Paul's argument? What's what's Paul's logic in Romans chapter 9? Did Esau prepare himself over time? Did Esau grow judicially hardened? Is there anything about judicial hardening or growing hardened over time that's talked about Esau? Or does Paul make a point to say it was before he was even born? It wasn't a growing hardened over time. This was God's decision before Esau was even born. What about Pharaoh? You may say, well, Pharaoh's different because Pharaoh prepared himself over time. Pharaoh hardened himself over time. Pharaoh was let go to the hardness of his own heart with the plagues. That's true, but in Exodus 4.21, God specifically says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he's going to do this. So God does that. Some exegetes would argue that the Greek verb prepared, they prepared themselves, is in the middle voice, not the passive. The middle voice would be translated, they prepared themselves, which would be reflexive action for destruction, which would come from this over time, judicial hardening through their own growing callous. They're, they're earning this destruction because they're bringing it upon themselves through repeated rejection, through repeated rejection. Eventually, God gives them over. So if it's the middle voice, they're preparing themselves over time through a judicial hardening to be a vessel of destruction, if it's in the middle voice. Or is it in the passive voice? 
The passive voice would be God is the one actively preparing them for destruction. In other words, it was God's sovereign choice to prepare them beforehand, namely before the foundation of the world, or namely before they were born. Today's most scholarly Greek expert, Daniel Wallace, in his Greek grammar beyond the basics, gives a compelling argument for the passive voice instead of the middle voice. Let me give you the quote here from his textbook. Quote, First, grammatically, the direct middle is quite rare and is used almost exclusively in certain idiomatic expressions. This is decidedly not the case with the word prepared. Nowhere else in the New Testament does it occur as a direct middle. Second, the perfect tense, the middle passive form, is always to be taken as a passive in the New Testament. Third, the lexical nature of the word prepared, coupled with the perfect tense, suggests something of a done deal. Fourth, the context argues strongly for a passive and completed notion. In verse 20, the vessel is shaped by God's will, not its own. To argue then that the word prepared is a direct middle seems to fly in the face of grammar, lexical meaning, and context. Now let's go into Romans chapter 11, verse 7, because there's another passage of Scripture that talks about two groups of people. Romans eleven seven, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, the rest were hardened. The elect obtained it, the rest were hardened. Okay, the question on this becomes, well, why were the rest hardened? Was it a judicial hardening over time, where they grew callous over time, or was it a sovereign choice by God before the foundation of the world that they would be hardened? The next verse, verse chapter 11, verses 8 through 10, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Okay, what I want to do is just look at the verb choices here. The verb choices that Paul uses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, the rest were hardened. That is in the aorist passive. So the question you've got to ask is, does this mean that they grew hardened over time? Did they grow calloused? Was it a judicial hardening? Well, in that case, Paul should have used what would be the imperfect tense, the imperfect passive. The imperfect verb in the Greek is translated continual action in the past tense, which would mean they kept on continually hardening themselves over time. It was an ongoing hardening. It, that would have been the imperfect tense. Okay, what does the passive verb mean as opposed to the middle? The passive voice means that the subject is being acted upon. In this case, God is the one who hardened them. He sovereignly acted upon them to do this. What's the middle voice? The subject is acting upon itself. So if this were translated in the middle voice, it would be, they harden themselves. So the common view from traditionalists is to look at this verb as an imperfect middle. An imperfect 
middle. The imperfect means continual ongoing action in the past as opposed to the aorist, which is a point in time. The middle voice means the subject is acting upon itself. So if this were in the imperfect middle, it would be translated, they kept on continually hardening themselves, hardening themselves, or they continually grew hardened over time. It was a continual, gradual, they were hardened. They kept hardening themselves by continually rejecting. Now, it's not in the imperfect middle. It's in the aorist passive. The aorist means a point in time. Passive means God is the one that's doing the action upon the people. So it's not a growing calloused over time. It's a sovereign choice for God to do that. And then in verse 8, Paul quotes Isaiah 29.10. And Paul says there, God gave them a spirit of stupor. God gave them. That's in the aorist active indicative. In other words, God is the actor. He's the one giving them a spirit of stupor. It's not over time. It's not, it's not gradual. It's not that they're hardening themselves. It's not a judicial hardening. It's, 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 it's God did this. They're not growing hardened. They're not, they're not in the spirit of stupor over, over time. If that were the case, Paul would have used the imperfect tense again in the middle voice which would be translated, they kept on growing hardened over and over time. They did it themselves. But that's not the verb tense God or Paul uses there. So you see that in Romans 9, there is one whom God loved. There's one whom God hated, namely Jacob and Esau. There is one whom God raised up and hardened to show his power, Pharaoh. They are out of the same lump, vessels prepared for destruction. They didn't prepare themselves, God prepared them, and there are vessels for honor. So all through Romans 9, you see two groups of people, the elect and the reprobate. Now, let's just look at some cautions here. God, again, the infralapsarian view of reprobation, God did not take innocent creatures make them wicked by infusing wickedness in them and then damning them for doing what God worked in them to do wickedness. God ordained the fall. Adam sinned volitionally. And God ordained that all people would be fallen in Adam. And so the eternal decree of election and reprobation takes into account the fallen nature of humans who were not holy, who were not blameless, who are sinners and therefore sin by nature and by choice. And God simply leaves some in that state, and others he intervenes to take out of that state. So the elect he takes out of that state, the non-elect, the reprobate, he simply leaves in that. He doesn't have to work sin in the reprobate to make them more sinful than they already are. God doesn't compel or work sin into the non-elect, but simply lets them go the natural course of their fallen nature. In other words, reprobation is a passing over or a not intervening to overcome original sin and guilt and deadness, whereas election to life is God's active work in a sinner to regenerate them, to call them, to grant them repentance and faith. Let me close with some words by R.C. Sproul. This is what R.C. Sproul, the late great R.C. Sproul says, quote, If God in any sense predestines or foreordains reprobation, 
Doesn't this make the rejection of Christ by the reprobate absolutely certain and inevitable? And if the reprobate's reprobation is certain in light of predestination, doesn't this make God responsible for the sin of the reprobate? We must answer the first question in the affirmative and the second in the negative. If God foreordains anything, it is absolutely certain that, he will foreordain, that what he foreordains will come to pass. The purpose of God can never be frustrated. If God foreordains reprobation, does this not obliterate the distinction between positive, negative, and involve a necessity of force? If God foreordains reprobation, does this not mean that God forces, compels, or coerces the reprobate to sin? Again, the answer must be negative. If God, when he's decreeing reprobation, does so in consideration of the reprobate's being already fallen, then he does not coerce him to sin. To be reprobate is to be left in sin, not pushed or forced to sin. If the decree of reprobation were made without the view to the fall, then the objection to double predestination would be valid and God would be properly charged with being the author of sin. What R.C. Sproul does there is he clearly articulates the distinction are they talking about equal ultimacy. So let's just recap. God sovereignly chooses many individual sinners to be saved, and he did this before the foundation of the world. It was unconditional election whereby there, were, there was nothing in the sinner that moved God or merited God to choose. God simply did it because it was the good pleasure of his will. By necessity and by logic, and the fact that we know the rest of the Bible teaches that there are those that don't come to faith in Christ, we have to conclude that there are those that were not unconditionally chosen, that were not predestined to life, to salvation. Who are those? They're called the reprobate. Does God actively make them sin so that he can punish them for doing what he works in them? Absolutely not. That's equal ultimacy. What the Reformed doctrine of reprobation teaches is preterition. God simply leaves them in their state of sin. In other words, God does no injustice to a sinner. All sinners deserve justice. All sinners are fallen in Adam. All sinners are fallen because of the inherited nature we receive from Adam. We all sin individually. We will be accountable for our sins. Every single person deserves justice. So what does everybody deserve? Justice. For God to leave some in that state, he does them no injustice. He's not doing them injustice by leaving them in a state of sin that they already deserve. So he's doing no injustice to the reprobate by leaving them in their state of sin. But for the elect, God does mercy. God does grace. God sovereignly overcomes the depravity to grant them and only them saving faith, grace, regeneration, calling, salvation. So God works actively in the lives of the elect to overcome the sin. In the non-elect, he simply leaves in that state of sin, does them no injustice, and at the end of the day, they are punished for their own personal sin and the sin that they inherited from Adam. Now, some will stand up and say, I object. This whole thing makes God the author of sin because he ordained this whole thing in the first place. Again, did God ordain the fall? Yes. Did God cause Adam to sin? 
No. Did God ordain that all people would be fallen in Adam? Yes. There's this whole issue of primary and secondary causes and God's decree, and it's a whole discussion for another time. But again, if you deny these doctrines of God's eternal decree, what you're going to end up doing is limiting or denying God's omniscience and God's exhaustive foreknowledge. And that's what the open theists have done. They're, they're, they're consistent in their theology because they know that if God ordains all things that come to pass and these things do come to pass, then um, God, their way of getting around it is saying, okay, God does not have exhaustive foreknowledge of all future events. Things take God by surprise. That is not orthodox Christianity. God has a sovereign decree. God has exhausted foreknowledge of all things. God doesn't see things in the future and, and make mistakes on what he sees. All things that God sees, all things that God ordains will infallibly come to pass. There are those that are chosen for salvation. There are those that he simply leaves in their state of sin. And God does no one injustice, but God does grace for those that deserve his justice by saving many through sovereign election. And Revelation 7 tells us that they are more numerous than the stars in the sky, that there was a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, language, and people. This has been a very difficult topic, a lot of theological jargon used, but I pray that it's been helpful to kind of understand this doctrine that we don't talk much about, which is the doctrine of reprobation. Well, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm so thankful that you take the time to listen to this podcast. I do like hearing from listeners, so if you want to email me or you want to check out uh, Facebook or Twitter, you can go to seancole.net and find all my contact information. You can go to iTunes and give us a positive review and rating. You can share this on your social media platforms with others that you find to be helpful. And so I really appreciate you listening. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you, cause His face to shine upon you, and would you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.